Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. So we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, thanks, everybody, um, for coming. I know some of you must be a little tired after celebrating last night. Uh, we are thrilled to have with us today uh, Dr. Jonathan Pershing. Uh, Jonathan is currently the Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, responsible for technology and climate change policy at, at the uh, Department of Energy. Uh, Jonathan has been on the front lines of climate change policy uh, for more than two decades. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with Jonathan twice uh, during my 10 years of, uh, of service in the government uh, in the Clinton administration. Uh, when he was one of our lead negotiators in international climate negotiations, and then again in the Obama administration, uh, where he served as the uh, deputy uh, special envoy uh, for climate change over at the Department of State. Uh, Jonathan is responsible for both uh, thinking about uh, domestic and international climate policy and technology issues uh, at the Department of Energy. I think it's an exciting time with uh, the new Secretary of Energy uh, reorganizing and, and putting new direction uh, for the efforts uh, to focus on policy uh, issues at, uh, at the department. Uh, and we're excited to hear uh, what Jonathan has today, uh, to say today on uh, energy and climate policy over at the department. Uh, Jonathan will present uh, his material and then he'll take questions uh, after his remarks. So please hold questions uh, until then. Jonathan, welcome to the seminar. Great. Thanks very much, Joe. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, you get a chance to spend too much time in Washington and all of a sudden you feel that you've got a lot less insight into what's really going on and more of an inside bubble of the view. You've got, uh, so this is, it's useful to come up. I had already a series of discussions this morning. I had an interesting breakfast with some of the folks uh, in the Boston area who were doing some interesting work on new technologies and talking a bit about some of the constraints on emerging technology markets and what the government might do in that front. And then later this afternoon I'll have some conversations with folks here in Massachusetts with the state government who are working on some of the energy policy questions that the federal government's interested in. So it's actually very useful to get out of Washington because you do a lot more, a lot more work than you might think you could do uh, in DC. Having said that, this will not be a state talk or a talk about uh, those particular technologies. Instead, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna walk through a little bit about what's going on in the president's climate work uh, at the national level, and then try to tie that back in a little bit to the international side. So you guys have all had a series of, of discussions on climate. This is not going to be new at the front end, so it kind of sets the stage. More useful for you to see how we think about it than necessarily to provide you with new insight about the problem, but the context and the framing is really what we're doing in the process here. So I don't think anybody uh, in, in the community in, this, in the government thinks other than this, but the world is definitely warming, and we have to do something about the emissions. That's what's driving it, so no surprise here. Here's the trend. This comes from a report that was done by the United Nations Environment Program by UNEP. It was released last year. Uh, it, frankly, it doesn't look any different if you were to do it this year. The most recent numbers look more or less identical. What you can see there is this is 1970 through 2010. Uh, we actually do have data problems, so it's really hard to get accurate data, globally accurate data uh, from all countries. Nonetheless, you get a trend that looks more or less like this. The pink on the bottom, uh, the yellow on the bottom, that's all the energy sector. Uh, the buildings, which is in that purple flame flavor, that's basically energy as well. Uh, going above that, you get into agriculture, and then the greens are forestry, and at the top you've got waste. So you can get some sense about the sectoral mix, but overall, hugely driven by that large pink box at the bottom. So it's basically the energy discussion. And this is the average temperature. The IPCC released its fifth assessment report, first working group uh, paper uh, in a meeting about a month ago. Uh, that was uh, the first of the series of the fifth assessment that'll come out. A lot of folks here have actually worked on those assessments over the years. Uh, this is the science working group. There will be two others that will come out over the course of the next year, one on the impacts of climate change and then one on various kinds of responses and mitigation measures. But this is what it's telling us about the history. So if those trends go up, it's not particularly surprising to see this, this is the, the trend in degrees Celsius. The darker the colors into those purples uh, get you into a, a temperature range of almost two and a half degrees warming in some particular parts of the globe over give or take some of the last hundred odd years. So this is not 
it's not really questioned. People are pretty confident in these kinds of numbers. This is not really the issue, but it frames the urgency and the context <coughs> for the discussion. It's useful to think about it as uh, what the sectors are that matter. Globally, about two-thirds are energy. In the U.S., about 85% of emissions are energy. So it's very much an energy problem, and it's very hard to disentangle then any kind of climate policy from an energy policy. And as you think about these things, they get completely conflated. Now, in the rest of the world, particularly in some of the developing countries, it is a fundamentally different issue. It's an agricultural problem. It's a problem that might have to do with, with lifestyles at a much more basic level of sustainability. And as a consequence, they tend to see it from a very different perspective. And even in some places like Brazil, where it's a heavily forestry-based issue, again there, the relative weight of energy is quite a bit lower. But as a global matter driving this forward, it's fundamentally an energy question, and certainly for the US. It's fundamentally an energy question. So here are the energy emissions, and you can kind of see them uh, uh, by year, going across on the left side by country. And then on the right side, those are cumulative emissions uh, from 1900 to 29, 1930 to 1959, and so far in 1990 to 2012. You kind of see the relative growth in both uh, gigatons of carbon on an absolute basis, on an annual basis, and then on a cumulative basis. And we know this is a, a problem that's a stock problem, how much you put in. And as a consequence, how much is in the atmosphere cumulatively matters a great deal. And what you can see there is the United States at the bottom. We're in green. Japan above that. The EU, that nice big blue thing, uh, this actually accommodates the existing current EU 27, even uh, look back into time, recognizing that they had gotten smaller and began as an EU 12 at a European community. And before that, they were just individual member states. So this takes the current 27 and moves them back in time. That yellow one in the middle, though, is really a huge piece of the future and where it's going. That's where China is. But let's not dismiss the size of that green one on the bottom. These are the two major players in the world market. It, it says cumulative, but I think it's actually total for that period. Yeah, isn't it? it's the total over that, that period. Right. Cumulative over that window, 10 years. Yeah, or in some cases, 90, it's 20 years. So <clears throat> the science is more or less giving us, in round numbers, an estimate of about a 50% reduction globally by 2050 and about an 80% uh, reduction by 2100 in those emissions if you want to keep numbers stabilized, give or take some at about two degrees. And I don't want to uh, overstate the, 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 uh, the precision of this. This is a pretty general kind of characterization, but it gives you a sense of the scale of the reductions required. They're really quite large, and it gives you a sense of the timeline over which you might try to take them, not as long as we used to think. 2050 isn't actually all that far away. I began working on this in the mid-1980s, and at that point, 2050 was basically 75 years out. It was like forever. Now it feels a lot shorter, and the dynamic of how long our energy stock lasts and our built infrastructure lasts is well within that time horizon. So it's shifted in terms of our need and the urgency with which we attached to this problem. So let me turn from that a bit and then talk about, about the US policy and what we're doing in, in that particular context. And the thing that I would note here is that this is a, I call it a second best policy. This is a policy that was driven not by the perfect solution and by an economically optimized solution, which was in some kind of a price structure and a legislative mandate. We couldn't get that. And people have tried to get something along those lines for a long time now. Uh, the most recent virtual, virtually a success, at least in one house of Congress, was close was a, was, a, was a bill that uh, actually was passed by Waxman and Markey uh, a couple of four years ago. That didn't succeed in the Senate, and it looks now increasingly unlikely that you're going to see something like it anytime soon. And that implicates both a cap structure as well as a, likely a tax structure. It just doesn't seem likely that we'll end up with that kind of an outcome. So we're now much more in the second best world of a series of actions and policies many of which are at the executive level, things that can be done with administrative fiat that you don't need to go through a congressional mandate to get to. But so much you can do through facilitating state programs where we have regulatory authority that already exists. That's the set of emphases that we put out in terms of where we're trying to move next. So here's the US number. Remember I was saying how much of it was energy. If you take a look at the left side, that's electric power is blue, transportation is red, industry is yellow, and across the light blue is residential and commercial. Again, that's all energy. It's that little bit that's an ag and some bits of the industry that are not. It's really dominantly an energy question. And it is equally dominantly a carbon dioxide question. That's the blue on the right side. The other gas is quite a bit of methane in that leftover bit, about 10% methane, about 4% nitrous oxide, the remainder of the 10, what we think of the six, the six major greenhouse gases, hydrofluorocarbons, perfluorocarbons, and sulfur hexafluoride. Those represent really quite a small share 
of the residual. So big carbon dioxide problem, big energy problem. That's the U.S. vision. So here we are. Uh, on, on the left-hand side is kind of the trend that we've got in that uh, kind of tan color. That's the historical emissions in the United States. And they've been falling since about 2005. You can see where they go through about 2010. The reference case that's comes from the Energy Information Administration, which on a regular basis puts out projections of where we think things are going to go, that's the black carried forward through the year 2020. That's against the commitment that we made in Copenhagen when the president said we will try to get to 17% below 2005 levels by the year 2020. And that's represented by that dotted green line. It's not a curve. It's not a, a likely scenario. It merely draws a straight line from 2005 to 2020 at 17% below the 2005 levels. So you can kind of see that the first part of the trend in the, in the kind of tan color, we're not too far off the number, but then the projections have us continuing to be flat or perhaps even growing slightly, which means that we've got a, a, a gap that we have to close. And the president's climate action plan, which he announced uh, in June of this past year, is in many ways designed explicitly against that gap. How do you think about things that plausibly could close the gap between where we've been and where we're trying to go? So it has three pieces. It has the first piece about cutting pollution, because at the end of the day, it really is a mitigation problem. But it's got two other pieces, which are, I'll talk about very briefly as well, one of which is we have not avoided the damages or the likely damages from existing emissions, from existing increases in temperature. And if you take a look at the trends that I was putting up in that first slide globally, you might have noticed that one bit where it's close to two degrees increase turns out to be over the northern plains in the United States. We're already seeing the consequences of climate change. So a second part of the plan is about how do you manage those impacts. And a third part, and this is very much that first point that I was making about the relative magnitude of the United States in the total, is how do you think about an international framework? It is insufficient to think about this <coughs> narrowly as a US problem. All three are elements of the plan. Let me turn first to the domestic piece and where we are on the domestic side. So those are the three bits on the left side that we just talked about. We've got a whole host of activities in the domestic plan power plant rule. I'll come back to that in a minute. The whole notion of renewable energy. I'll come back to that. Some of the issues about investment. How do you think about investing in advanced options for fossil fuel? Things like capture and storage. You can see, for example, some of the dynamics in the U.S. energy mix, how much of our total share comes from coal and increasingly comes from gas. If you think about a long-term scenario with those fuels in the mix, you've got to figure out how do you deal with the carbon that comes out of those. There's a whole transportation discussion that's attached to this. There's a question about buildings close to, uh, on the order of a third of all US emissions are attached to buildings. So not direct, but both direct and indirect. <coughs> Things about methane, that's the next big number there, but there may be some good big wins you can get on that regard. And then we're gonna do this thing called a quadrennial energy review, which I'll also say a few words about. Let me start with the carbon piece. This is the single biggest number that we're likely to get out of the plan. It comes out of the Clean Air Act, and the plan makes very direct and explicit a commitment uh, from the president that he has already directed the administrator of EPA to do two things. The first one is to issue rules on new power plants. The second is to issue rules on existing power plants. So the first is anything that will be built going forward. Those initial draft rules were issued quite a while back and they've now been revised. And they've been revised to take into account the plan and where things are going to go. So our revisions now on the street for comment. Uh, they're doing a whole series of listening sessions around that series of discussions. Uh, there, there's, uh, a, a, the rule itself says in about a year you have to then issue a final version of those. The new power plants are pretty interesting because they're in the context of what U.S. expected growth looks like. It's not possible to make this analysis and say, okay, I've got a power plant rule and I don't know what I'm going to have in the future, but I actually do know something about it. I do know that gas looks like it's become the fuel of choice in the power community that we're not really building new coal in a significant way. I do know that technologies have moved significantly and that the price of things like solar and wind have come down. I do know that the cost of building coal has actually gone up independent of this in some part because of things like the MATS rule, which is the mercury and air toxics rule, and in some part because of relative pricing in terms of local environmental risks. A whole series of reasons have moved us very much into a gas market. Or an emissions market, if you think about the unit of power delivered, per unit of CO2, much reduced emissions per unit of power. That enabled a relatively stringent standard to be set. It's a standard that's basically set as a level of gas, because that's where we are, and it means that we need to really find ways to manage our coal going forward. 
ever going to be able to continue to use coal. There are some solutions there. They're going to be difficult solutions. They're solutions that deal primarily with capture and storage. Uh, I'll be going down. There's a ministerial meeting uh, that's being held in Washington. Of all the ministers of the major 20-odd nations in the world, big 20 countries in the world, looking at something called the Carbon Sequestration Leadership Forum. And we're going to take them all down to the biggest facility in the world, which is the Mississippi. It's a place called Kemper. It's uh, owned and operated by the Southern Company. And it's building this big, standard coal-fired power plant where they've got 65% capture, which puts it at a well below gas level. Now, is it commercial? No, it's being done with some subsidies. It's got some support from the state as well as from the federal government. But it represents a kind of technology that you might imagine moving forward that would put you well on the pathway to meeting these kinds of commitments. The second one is the existing plants. That's going to be much, much more difficult. As you think about the existing infrastructure, the question is, what are you asking to have retired? What kinds of things do you think are going to work? What kinds of things do you think will not work? How do you think about the costs and who incurs them? It mostly gets passed back to ratepayers. And in the context of thinking about those closures, what do you think about the reliability of your grid? What if all the closures are in one particular region where that is, in fact, the base load? What do you do in that case, and how do you manage the transition, and how do you think about the consequences, not narrowly in terms of CO2, but in terms of power reliability? So that set of conversations is now underway, and EPA will be putting out its first set of rules uh, uh, in June of 2014, and finalizing those rules for existing plants in June of 2015. And then let's be clear, at that point, there's almost certainly litigation. And at that point, the way the work is done is that the EPA issues rules and then states develop implementation plans. And then EPA reviews those implementation plans for adequacy against the rule. And then the implementation takes place. And there is likely to be litigation at every single point in that stage. So this is going to be a little while down the road, but it's a powerful tool, could lead to hundreds of millions of tons of reduction against the aggressive effort that we're looking to have. I think if we can do this well, we get a long, long way towards our 17. We also have a number of efficiency programs, kind of think about where they are on the efficiency side. So we've got, uh, this is one of the few areas where DOE itself is the regulator in the energy sector. I was, when I first joined DOE, I was telling a friend of mine that I think the agency is badly named. If you're going to name it in terms of where its budget is, it would be the Agency of Nuclear Waste Cleanup, where two-thirds of the money goes. The Agency of Science and Research, and it does everything. It's a stunning place. You can get work on genomics, and you can get information about supercomputing, and you can get information about uh, galactic formation. That's the second part. So the Agency of Nuclear Waste Cleanup and Science, and oh, by the way, energy, which is less than one-sixth of the budget. So you start thinking about these pieces. Anyway, one of the few regulatory areas that we do have in the energy sector at the Department of Energy is for appliance standards and efficiency. So we actually regulate those, and there's a commitment in the plan to substantially increase the stringency of those regulations. We've got a series that have just come out, and there are things you use all the time but never pay attention to. When you add up the magnitude of these things, what you end up here is on the order of 3 billion tons of carbon savings over the period through which this plan was voted. So lots of these things. It's freezers, it's fans, it's electric motors, it's questions of microwave ovens. I mean, it's very conventional daily use items that are then framed in terms of the efficiency gain that we can get, and that's a big piece of the plan as well. We've also got some work on investment that's part of the plan, and I, I mentioned this earlier. At the end of the day, a lot of the things we're trying to do don't really exist conveniently and comfortably in the market. And so the question is, can the government steer some resources to moving that market to a more cost-effective place so that over a period of, say, a few years or a decade or so, the price would come down to the point where you could remove all those subsidies and they would be competitive with a lower carbon cost. One of the areas that people are having a hard time finding investment for is in fossil fuels, particularly in things that do things like capture and storage. If you could do more of that, you'd find better solutions on the carbon front and make it politically much easier to move forward on some of these agreements. So there's an $8 billion deal that DOE is trying to manage, and it's a solicitation. It's out there for public uh, application. Its requirements are that it be a new technology, that it reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and that it be part of a commercial structure as opposed to merely being a straight government loan. So the idea really is to create incentives in the marketplace for moving this forward. The draft was just released over the course of the summer. We're now waiting to get some comments back. We did the period, ended early in September, and we're now hoping to get solicitation in, out there for solicitation. We'll see what, what actually comes forward. 
There are a host of other things in the plan. I only really want to pick up on one here, which is this quadrennial energy review. It's one of the things we've decided to do in our new secretary, Ernie Moniz, who some of you guys may have worked with. He was just down the road at MIT for a long time where he ran the MIT Energy Initiative, is very interested in the structure of American energy and energy policy. And it's one of those things that's really not about the Department of Energy, but it's about an interagency exercise. And even beyond that, the vast majority of the US energy system is privately held. This is not a government agency. We don't own our energy infrastructure as the federal government. We have some regulatory guidance. We provide uh, information through places like the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC, around things like transmission and new builds and some of the gas approvals. But ultimately, it's a private sector deal, and a lot of agencies have a hand in it. So the US Department of Agriculture runs rural electrification. The US Department of Interior is responsible for the siting of renewable facilities around the country. FERC is responsible for approvals of everything from some of the port facilities, some of the liquid natural gas export capacities. The Department of Energy is really a bit kind of a secretariat standing in the back with huge analytical resources and oversight, and so we'll run this secretariat. But the intent is looking in the context of climate change to take a look at the energy sector. Where is it going? What are the constraints that we have? How do we manage the long term where we're looking at much reduced CO2 emissions in the context of this aging infrastructure? The average age of the American power plant is 42 years old. This is not a new system, and it's a system which is not well designed for some of the new technologies that are coming online. So that's part of it. A whole bunch of other things, some advanced vehicle work, reducing methane emissions, reducing HFC emissions, some domestic issues in terms of what the government itself can do by way of purchase agreements, all of that in this first box of cutting emissions. <clears throat> I would say that the plan is going to have a significant effect, but it's not uniquely the, the reason that things have reduced so far. That tan line that I was showing a moment before, here are the federal actions in 2008. They have made a difference. But here are some other things that were not so much federal actions as perhaps uh, other events in the energy sector, significant, probably the most significant, the one at the top, the transformation of the natural gas sector, driving fundamentally, I'd say, more than 50% of the reduction from that, that transition. And there's been a big change in economic growth. We've got a very different infrastructure. We use things in a different way. Now, part of what gas is doing is repatriating some of the American chemical industry. It'll be very interesting to see how that plays out over time. But part of it is other kinds of demographics. The Department of Transportation issues regular reports on vehicles mile, vehicle miles traveled. It looks like we peaked about three years ago. So a population has grown. The number of people owning cars has also grown. But the number of miles those people are driving peaked and is now declining. People moving into cities, there's a different demographic for people today than there was for people who grew up when I did. Very different infrastructure driving some of those things in all those. And then the states are doing quite a lot, and technology has moved in interesting ways. So here's a technology piece. This particular one is the cost of wind. And if you take a look at it, the green on one side is how much we've deployed, and the blue that's on the left side is cents per kilowatt hour. It is startling how fast this has come down. This is 1980 through 2012. So really stunning decline in the cost of this particular technology. And here's an equivalent one for solar PV. And you get the same kind of trend, rapid, rapid increase in deployment. But look at the way the price has come down. It is now competitive in many of our markets. And we are seeing the consequences of that in two dimensions. One, it's moving into the market. We are seeing states like Hawaii with fundamentally different energy systems, as much as 20% now of renewables in places like that. But we're also seeing the, the pushback against that. Power utilities who get their revenues from rate recovery are no longer getting those revenues, and as a consequence, can't maintain an aging infrastructure. And how do you manage that new transition? It's going to be a real issue that we have to deal with, and it's in the context of this. And we also have all the states doing things. Power generation activities in the states, end-use sector work in the states. The climate plan provides for a lot more of this. I just put a couple of slides up here to give you a sense of what the states are actually doing. This particular work comes from a place called C2ES. It's an NGO that does a lot of data collection, and they put together this nice little map of the renewable portfolio standards. That's in the dark green. Uh, various other kinds of alternative energy portfolio standards, not just renewables, but moving you into a more diverse system. And then some that actually have a goal or setting a target for renewable energy as part of the mix. And you can see how much of the US is covered with those kinds of policies. Here's one on incentives for carbon capture and storage. It is not only a federal policy. It's an exercise in terms of individual states. Look where they are. It's most of the coal states. 
thinking about how to manage the carbon implications of the use of coal. And they've got a variety of different pieces. Some of them have policies around liability, so what do you do with the CO2? Others have policies around letting utilities recover the costs to go down that road, series of different choices. Here's one on residential building codes. Something that we can do as the federal government and think through what it looks like as a national matter and give guidance, but these are local. These are done by cities and municipalities, sometimes with state influence, but here's what the states are doing in terms of where they are, and we see that the vast majority of states are in there at 2009 or better as a standard. So they're really staying abreast with and moving forward on the efficiency options across the board. The states taking up a lot of slack where the federal government, at least at legislative levels, has been unable to move. So we take all these things together. This is kind of where it takes us. The dotted line, uh, uh, the lower dotted line there represents 17% below 2005. The two ranges reflect both at the upper end what we think the policy would look like without any, any of the actions that we're doing. The green reflects the range that we might be able to get to under a variety of different scenarios with the policies in this plan. It intersects, but you know that the <coughs> upper part of the line is well above 17. The lower part's below, but that means you've got to be pretty aggressive about the implementation of these things. And we probably have to find additional things, certainly beyond 2020, if we're going to stay on any legitimate course for reductions. There are a series of additional goals that are part not just of the plan, but things the president has committed us to. Doubling generation from wind, <coughs> solar, and geothermal. So that's a 2020 number. Uh, it moves out, but it, 2000, it moves up to about 5% as a nation. Some states obviously already well ahead of that. We do some oil imports, got some other benefits that we can think about for security. Doubling energy productivity, that's going to be probably the single hardest one to meet of this list. Because as our economy grows, even if our energy goes down, it doesn't go down fast enough to make the productivity go up quickly. That's going to be really, really tough. Buildings, we can do a lot there. We're doing a lot there already. And then 80% of electricity from clean energy sources, these are all things that are not only in the plan, but commitments that take us beyond the horizon talk about a second piece, which is the consequences of climate itself and where it takes us. So we've got a series of communities and how you make it better, how you protect the economy, and how you deal with the science in terms of the activity. And I've got a series of slides here that give you some sense within the energy sector of the impacts of climate change in the energy sector. So this is a slide that looks at the rate of warming in the U.S. It comes from EPA. It's a publication 2012. That's the map. And you can see that the red up there over the course of this next uh, next uh, but the last 100 years, same as we saw in the earlier graph, in some cases this is degrees Fahrenheit instead of degrees Celsius, so double by about two, but you kind of see where we are in some cases as much as four degrees warming. What does it do? Temperatures are increasing, heat waves more significant, sea ice changing, and the growing seasons actually increase. So there's some upsides, not only downsides. But on the energy side, we have demand goes up. Turns out electricity is mostly used for air conditioning, while gas, oil, and others are used for heating which means electricity demand is going up, so it's shifting the demand structure. The, the permafrost is beginning to melt. You're seeing problems in terms of managing drilling rigs in a lot of the northern parts of the country. And we've seen a huge increase in wildfires, all as a temperature phenomenon. Here's one on water. The upper slide, this is the drought monitor slide. This particular slide comes uh, from NOAA, uh, joint NOAA-USDA uh, uh, exercise. This is August of 2012, so last year. And what you can see is the entire middle of the continent was in a severe drought. In fact, it's so dark in some places that it's called an exceptional drought. And overall in the country, abnormally dry is yellow. Something like 75% of the country was yellow or worse at that time last year startling numbers. We do not normally see this really, really unusual. We expect to see more and more severe droughts going forward. We expect to see the snowpack melting at a different time if it comes, and we expect to see a change and a decline in groundwater. What happens to the energy sector? At the end of the day, every single one of our thermal plants runs with water cooling. There are some that do air cooling, but not very many. And at the end of the day, if we don't have access to the water, we've got trouble. And we've got change in availability for oil and gas production. A huge amount goes into the movement and the drilling. And we've got change in the precipitation for the snowpack. On the bottom down here, these are American plants that are um, uh, coal-fired facilities. If you superimpose in your mind where they are, what the drought looks like, you've got troubles here in the management of your system. Here's one on storms and sea level rise. 
On the top, those are all of the energy infrastructures, the little dots on the top. And you can see all the way through here, this whole area around the Gulf, that's all the drilling reefs we've got off the Gulf uh, in, in Gulf of Mexico. And those red lines, those are the largest 30 storms, hurricanes, over the course of the last 30 years. And that's the track. So you're not really immune anywhere on the south or the east coast. And we've seen the consequences of those storms coming up. And they make an enormous difference. And on the bottom, these are weather-related grid disruptions. And you can see there, it starts on the left. That's 2000. This is 2011, 2012. You can kind of see the trend in the disruptions in the grid in no small measure as associated with the weather activities. And the costs are quite severe. Intensities going up of these storms. We're seeing events with damages that are very, very significant. Power outages don't just lead to power <coughs> on its own, but then you can't pump gasoline, so we end up with distribution problems across the board, quite significant. And the states are doing a bunch of stuff here. Once again, they're kind of moving forward. There's stuff at the federal level and stuff at the state level, adaptation plans. It's interesting to me that this community does not have one, if I kind of think about the damages, and it's interesting that this whole community does. So they kind of note where things are happening. I am struck, these are water plans these guys are doing, very realistically thinking about those consequences. And let me turn to the last point, which is where the world is going and how we think about things happening. So it's moving, it's just moving a bit slow. Here's the uh, emissions by country, again, just to give you a slightly different version of that picture that I put up earlier. On this side, these are 2012 annual emissions, and on the other side, if you take a cumulative total over the period since the Industrial Revolution, you get a somewhat different picture. On this side, the US just shy of 15% of the total, China just shy of just over 25% of the total. If you go back to a cumulative number, though, it's the reverse. The US is 25%, and China is only about 10.5%. So really, it depends how, what period you count over in terms of thinking about responsibility and how it plays out. And that responsibility question is one that has plagued the negotiations. Who should have to act? Those whose emissions are growing in the future or those who've been responsible for where we are today? That's really plagued and made difficult the process. So this is a timeline. It's been on for a little while. Uh, I think there probably aren't that many people who've been doing it the whole time. I, I was one of the US negotiators for the convention in 1990, and we thought we had this nice short period of time where we'd really do some nice work, and we'd get it together, and it was going to work, and we'd have a framework, and very shortly after, we'd have a protocol, and we'd all adopt policies. So that, that was where we were then. And then in 1997, we finally got to the protocol, and we did that adoption, and we worked really hard on designing a good and I think close to an optimal, an optimized solution wasn't obviously perfect, but it wasn't bad, but we couldn't pass it. The rest of the world, and I would say not just some of the rest of the world, the rest of the world did this. Everybody did it except the US, but we didn't. And because it didn't have obligations for developing countries, its effect was somewhat smaller than you might have imagined. Fast forward, the Bush administration repudiates the deal. We come forward, a little bit forward, the Bush administration comes back in, in Copenhagen. And in Copenhagen, we decide we're going to have a series of additional policies. And that has moved us now to where we are. We're now doing a negotiation towards Paris in two years. And I'll say a few words about it. Copenhagen was done in uh, 2009. It has set a goal to try to keep emissions, and it's a goal that's not binding, try to keep emissions rise below 2 degrees. Don't let it rise more than 2 degrees. It gives mitigation commitments for the first time from developed and developing countries. The convention and the protocol narrowly about developed countries. So a big shift in that regard. And it calls upon countries to list the actions that they would take in a non-binding but politically powerful agreement in an annex. It recognizes all the other things. So for a lot of the world, things like forestry is real. It recognizes technology. It recognizes the real work that was done in places like Europe around a cap and trade program, acknowledges the value of all of those actions going forward. It calls for the first time for a staggering level of finance. And let me put this in context. It calls for $100 billion a year by 2020. It's a big number, but it's not a big number until you recognize how big it is in relative terms. The world's assistance for development aid, collectively, globally, is only $130 billion. This, in one step, virtually doubles that just for climate change. To get some sense about the magnitude of this kind of commitment, that was the deal that we did in Copenhagen. And it's useful to think about the relative strength of what was in and what was out. So here's a slide of Kyoto. This is what we had before in the Kyoto deal. And here is the pledges under Copenhagen. Under Kyoto, we had 38 countries who had obligations. Here we have 43, which isn't a big change. 
But another 48 actually have policies and measures, actions, even if they weren't in the form of commitments. Here's the number of the share of greenhouse gas emissions under which obligations were required. If you think about it in 2010, what's their current share? Those who took commitments, only 13% of the world. Today, 36% have commitments and another 42 have actions. So you're in fact covering basically 78% of the total. And here's a slide about the share projected in 2020. If we just stuck with Copenhagen, uh, with Kyoto rather, we'd be down at about 10%. And here what you see is the relative growth. It means that you're just shy of 80%. So in some sense, it gives you a framework to suggest that perhaps the legal structure of Kyoto may not have been the only solution. It may be moderated by participation. And in this instance, while it wasn't legal, it got a whole lot of people taking action that you otherwise may not have seen. So what's the US doing? What's the plan call for? How the pieces fit out? We have multilateral engagements, bilateral cooperation, series of programs on technology. They play out across the board for international negotiations. One, the Clean Energy Ministry, an exercise where the energy ministers of the world of the major countries get together and focus on improved efficiency, clean supply, and access and thinking about that structure moving forward. On the top, that was the most recent meeting we did in, in India. That's, uh, uh, that's uh, the Prime Minister of India opened the session. It's Prime Minister Singh next to Steve Chu, who's the Energy Minister, for, uh, Secretary of the United States. Uh, and then on the bottom, uh, a senior meeting of the earlier session. <coughs> What's it doing? Reducing emissions. If you take a look at what it's already likely to deliver, maybe avoid as many as 650 power plant builds that you would not require because of an improvement in efficiency. Renewable energy deployment, you're doing things like getting more women in the workforce in the energy sector. So things that is a global matter that really are trying to elevate capacities and good practice across the board. Let me focus on one country in particular. This is a picture uh, in 1983 of the Pudong area in Shanghai. This is a picture in 2010 taken from more or less the same vantage point. This is a city on the move. And it is moving fast. It's stunning to look at this. I have another picture, uh, which is a, a slide a deck that I have for Beijing, except the picture on the left, you just can't see. It looks like it's completely fogged over. And then I have one the next day where it's clean. You can see across the street. And then I have one a couple of days later where you can see the mountains 15 miles away. The problems in China are enormous. The growth is staggering. Uh, at the end of the day, here is the picture for Chinese car so it starts off in 1990, and it runs through 2010. China's looking at 103 million vehicles, growing from a level of less than 10. So really startling levels of growth. China builds half of the world's new floor space every year. So you kind of think about that, and you get kind of a size dimension, and you get a sense of the scale. If we think about a country that matters, it's going to be China. If the US and China can figure out how to do work jointly, we can do phenomenal things on this problem but we also have the constraints of operating with any other major power in terms of how you play there. Secretary Moniz is actually there now. He's returning today. He's had a series of very, very constructive meetings. That's a process that will be ongoing. We're going to have to continue to work on. Another piece, the non-CO2 gases. This particular slide, again, comes from the United Nations Environment Program. If you were to just address carbon dioxide and think about where you are on the carbon dioxide element, what you'd end up here would be just CO2. That looks pretty good. But if you think the problem is going to be more severe and more urgent, you might try to get some of these short-lived pollutants that move you down here. And if you combine them, you can really reduce the overall curve. So there's a value in thinking not just about CO2, but about methane, about HFCs, use the Montreal Protocol for ozone depleting, depleting substances, other scenarios that let you move forward. Oops. At the end of the day, you can do this, but it's pretty public. This is just one version of a future world. It's done by the IEA, the International Energy Agency. And what they've got here is a scenario that says you'd be on track if you did all these things to stay at two degrees. And at the end of the day, you see where power comes way down from its peak. You see industry really being squeezed. You see transport essentially becoming decarbonized entirely. You see significant additional efficiencies that are gained. So there are scenarios that get you there, but these are not low-cost scenarios in terms of the politics. In terms of the absolute numbers, they're also big numbers. In terms of the share of the global economy, they're relatively modest numbers. They're measured in single-digit percent numbers as a share of the economy. They look more or less like the costs, maybe lower than the costs, of the impact of climate change. But the political cost is high. And the inertia in the system is large. And managing this requires some combination of domestic policy as well as international policy to move. 
And that's kind of what we're trying to do with all of these pieces. So let me leave it at that and happy to take any questions you guys might have. Great. Thank you, John. So we have, uh, we have about 25 minutes for questions. Uh, I suspect there'll be a lot. I'd like to take uh, uh, the prerogative as the chair to ask the first question and sort of step back a little bit. Uh, you made a reference to the QER. Uh, you are in charge of, of sort of the shop at DOE that has the analytic capacity. Um, so I think it would be helpful if you could describe a little bit about what kind of role analysis can and does play, both in how you think about the job sort of uh, within government on how do we identify uh, the most effective policies, and then how that translates into informing the political debate both domestically in the U.S., but also how you engage internationally. Let me give you two examples of things that might be uh, ways to think about the system and the sequence. One of which is something called the social cost of carbon. So the idea behind the social cost of carbon is that if you were to think about the incremental ton of greenhouse gas emissions, it would have some incremental damage associated with it. It requires a lot of computations. You have to think about, well, what is climate change going to look like? And how do you think about those damages? And can you quantify those costs? All relatively uncertain. And then if you can do that, how do you, you backcasting it or to the, to the present, doing a net present value, much more straightforward. That's a pretty easy task. And then thinking about how do I assign a price and that falls out of those damage functions. Turns out that the models for which these global assessments are, are, are developed in terms of damages are models that are often paid for by DOE. We fund a lot of that research out of the Office of Science. That research is done through academic institutions, some in the United States, some internationally. We then participate in an interagency process, in this instance led by the White House uh, Council of Economic Advisors, which brings in EPA and DOE and USDA and the Treasury Department and the agencies that have an interest in this exercise and move it forward. So, all right, we now have the first part analytical. We have the piece that's around interagency collaboration and coordination. And we have the question of application. What does it do? Well, it's used in cost-benefit analysis. If you're thinking about the cost of a regulation, then what you'd like to do is think about its costs, both in terms of some financial metric, and if you could bring in the climate consequences, that could be a cost you'd add on one side, because it could then be balanced by the benefit of the policy in terms of if it's reduced costs. So if a policy reduces greenhouse gas emissions, it offsets some of those damages. And you can think about that as a balance. What kind of policies are out there? Well, it turns out that the first policies for the revised version of the social cost of carbon came from DOE. They were policies in our efficiency standards. If you had an efficient appliance, say a microwave, which was the first one that we ended up doing when the cost was revised, if you have a microwave that's more efficient, is there some carbon benefit, and can you calculate that into the stringency of the standard? And we did, and it's incorporated. It didn't make very big of a difference because it's not a very big number, but it was enough to be added to create a new framework for how you think about that problem. So there's kind of the entire cycle, the development of the modeling tools, very much scientific research, the assessment of how you'd apply that, kind of an economic modeling analysis, interagency process, where DOE is only one of many, to the application within a regulatory structure. Maybe a very different piece, which is this big one that's coming down the road now <coughs> on the power plants. So here's the power plant rule. The power plant rule is going to be an EPA rule. It's a, an authority that EPA has got under the Clean Air Act. No other agencies have an explicit authority. The uh, climate action plan that the president put out notes the particular interest of this, the energy department in that rulemaking because of the intersection of the energy sector and this rule. So we have a particular stake in this. It's an EPA rule. So EPA is going through and deciding, well, how stringent should it be? And it's going to collect comments, and it's got its own internal analysis. But we at the Department of Energy will run our own analyses. And we'll do them not narrowly in the context of the climate and its costs and benefits, but we'll look at some things that, frankly, EPA doesn't do as well because it doesn't have the, the, the background and the authorities. We'll look at the issue around reliability and distribution. We'll look at bottlenecks inside the grid. We'll look at what would happen if any given plant closed and what that might mean to reliability. That's a set of things that we can bring to that table, which we then introduce, and in our interactions with EPA as they develop their rule, will influence their decision. It won't necessarily change it because it's their authority and they have a set of issues which they are weighing in making that determination, but it's an area of input into the process. So two different examples, two places that we kind of play. Do you want to call on uh, whoever has Yeah, please. please. As natural gas gets cheaper, there's less incentive for companies like National Grid to prevent leaks. I can literally smell it on my way in here 
and as natural gas comes online more in China, it's going to be a problem there too. How can these problems be addressed? So there's two issues here. I would say the first one around your being able to smell the natural gas is what you can do something about, because there are laws that say that if you're smelling it, you really got to get them out there pretty fast. So uh, there's probably a local hotline I'd really suggest you call. Um, uh, uh, having said that, I think the bigger point you're making is absolutely one that's, that's fair and, and you have to worry about. Uh, I'm struck, there's a, a picture, it's, it's, a, it's an incorrect picture, I probably shouldn't cite it, but you guys may have seen the photographs of the United States from space. These fabulous pictures, right, they take them at night and you see the entire East Coast lit up and you can get the perfect outline of where the borders of the country are and you can see all the major metropolises around the country. Well, there's this big center in North Dakota and that big center is where the, the, the new oil uh, is coming and it turns out that associated with that oil there's a lot of gas and it's being flared. So you're actually seeing some of the burns. Now it turns out you're not really seeing that, what you're mostly seeing is the Klieg lights that are lighting up the place where they're doing the drilling. So it's not really the gas, but it's kind of relevant in terms of thinking about the problem. A lot is going out. About uh, three weeks ago, the state of North Dakota has sued a number of the major operators of those fields in North Dakota for lost royalties. Because the North Dakota requirement right now is that you can flare, but if you pump the gas out, the state gets royalties on the gas that's, that's produced. If it's flared, there is no royalty. So the state's actually suing the energy producers to recover some of the costs and the consequence is likely to be an effort to capture some of that gas. So here's a kind of an interesting dynamic that's playing out. Let me go back to another study. There's one that's done by the University of Texas at Austin under a, an exercise that was led by the Environmental Defense uh, Organization, the NGO, and they uh, fairly recently put out the first of what will be a series of studies looking at gas leakage around the country. And they looked at just the upstream end. They're going to do the whole cycle. They'll, they'll start at the upstream in the well production. They'll look at distribution networks. They'll look at end of pipe uh, areas and, and end use. They've just done the, 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 the pumping, the, the production side. And it turns out that the EPA numbers are pretty close, but things are coming out in different places than EPA thought. The aggregate is pretty good, but the individual elements are smaller. So it turns out that a very small share of the total wells produce the vast majority of the total emissions. It's not an even distribution. It turns out they don't produce at the same level all the time. It's a function of what stage they're at in their drilling cycle. It turns out that there are a number of relatively easy engineering fixes for some of these things. They don't need to be super costly. So there's a number of factors that are playing in, and this is basically a straight data problem. Until this study was done, we actually didn't know. And we had expectations. In many cases, they were wrong. And so you need that kind of data to make a determination about a good policy in where you go. And then one last comment about it. If we take a look at what might be there in terms of price and thinking through what the gas system looks like, gas has come down in a huge way. I, I was involved in the organization where we set up the regional greenhouse gas trading program for the Northeast states. I was at that point working for an NGO, uh, a, a research think tank called the World Resources Institute, and I ended up being the facilitator for the state negotiations. It's actually an incredibly interesting exercise. At that point in time, we ended up with a dozen states playing, and gas prices were at almost $14 a million cubic feet. It is today about three. And the consequence has been that we've, emissions have come way down because people have switched from gas to coal. But I don't expect them to stay quite that low because you can't sustain the production. My guess is it goes up. I don't know how much it goes up, but it probably goes up. And my guess is that environmental regulations will make it increasingly difficult to flare. And that the leakage costs will be, will be only regulated as well as captured because even at $4, it's worth the cost to make these larger systems perform better. Over here and then over here. Yeah, please. Jonathan Jody Freeman from Velasco Honey. Um, it's striking how integrated now energy and climate or environmental policies become. It was always true, but now it's just it's just undeniable and they have to be congruent. So with that in mind, there are a number of authorities you haven't mentioned. DOI's authority to approve drilling onshore on federal lands, DOI's authority offshore and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, DOE's authority over LNG exports, um, State Department international pipelines, and we can go on, right? And the big one, oil export policy, governed not entirely by Congress, but by a lot of executive power too. So I guess my question is, are those policies in the administration congruent with the climate policy? I think you told a, a story that says the policy is coherent, 
but I think there's actually an argument that there's a dimension of the policy which I just listed, which is arguably not coherent, and that's a big challenge. So can you shed some light? So I think there's, there's two issues. The first one is that I was telling the DOE story, um, and I think there is a larger governmental story to be told, and I put pieces of it in, but I was looking at it through a bit of a lens, which is where I'm currently sitting. Uh, having said that, I think that there are other pieces that are in the plan, and then there's some that are not. So what's in the plan in terms of other state authorities, other, other uh, executive authorities? In particular, the siting question, the Interior Department, that's in. And one of the commitments that was made is to do additional siting for renewable capacity around the country. That's an interior commitment that's explicitly listed. Uh, in particular, in terms of this, the, the, the authorities, for example, the State Department shares with the Treasury Department uh, is the question whether or not we will do any more funding internationally of coal facilities. That's explicitly in. Keystone's not in. Uh, and it's not in for a lot of reasons. This is a plan that's meant to go through 2020. All of us hope that decision will be taken very soon. And we don't want to see it wait until 2020 and hang over our heads forever. The authority about whether or not you regulate the uh, distribution of the fuel is fundamentally a different kind of a question than the question of whether or not you can reduce the emissions attached to either combustion or the production of that fuel. Mostly the distribution is not where the leakage comes, not where the emissions arise. And so then the question becomes, in a much larger framework, where does the authority reside for efficiencies in the use and in the production? On the production side, efficiencies often rely with EPA. So rules, for example, on clean air quality, which are in here, are part of the deal. On methane, they're in here, they're part of the deal. And at the other end, on efficiency, they're not so much part of the plan, they're part of the president's overall set of actions. So, for example, in the oil space, it's all about transportation. 99% of our cars use petroleum, and that's all a function of the end-use side. A much smaller share goes into chemicals, but that's being done through the 54 miles per gallon equivalent numbers that we've got that aren't explicitly in the plan, but that would deal with those much larger framing questions. Now, having said that, I think there's a big space for things that are not fully covered. I think the part of what we need to think about is if we look at it more coherently as a big picture, instead of extracting slices, might we have different <coughs> policies and we're going to have to think about it because we get to, if we're lucky, to 17 and we got a long way to go and they get away from some of these very discrete things and think about more integrated questions. So it'd actually be great to talk about it and think about what ideas might be in that space. Yeah, please. Yeah, thank you very much for your explanation between the energy and the climate. And uh, I'm a business scholar from China and I want to uh, say one point uh, about the Chinese emission uh, reduction and the uh, <coughs> I think the, uh, the central government has uh, a core interest with the uh, U.S. to push the emission reduction, but the uh, problem is the local government. Uh, so uh, if you are a leader of a local government, and uh, how do you get into the uh, upper office? Yeah, that is uh, what the local government uh, considers. When, uh, with the, the emission <coughs> So there is a great soft implementation of the uh, environmental law and uh, regulations. So I, 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 would, I think I agree with the characterization. I spent a lot of time over the last couple of decades visiting China and having meetings with people. I found that um, I have a very different set of meetings when I'm in, in individual states than I do if I'm in Beijing. You get a different set of interactions. Uh, it's not unlike being in the United States and being in Washington instead of coming to Boston or you know, going to, to Manchester or going down to, to, to Cheyenne, Wyoming. You get a very different flavor for what's happening in local regions. I am struck in some of my more recent meetings in the, in the States and China about how much is going on. Part of it does seem to be coming from a central interest at, in Beijing in pushing aggressive new policy. And there's a lot underway. Part of it comes, I think, from a local commitment, not so much on climate, but on air quality, which often has climate benefits. So you really see, I think, a shift in a lot of big cities in particular, but often with support of the provinces, to really move that policy forward. Part of it comes on a technology driver. If you think about options as a local government about what you can do as an export market and how you can grow your economic development, which is also a mandate from the central government, you then take advantage of subsidies and programs to drive things like solar panel production or new technologies for efficiency, which you can export. Those are things that seem also to be coming not just from the top, but from the bottom. My own perception about China is that it's uh, the, the, the distance between 
um, Beijing and the individual capitals is very different than it is in the US. They're tied in a political way, which our US system is not tied. But they also have a degree of, of independence, and their revenue structure is fundamentally different than ours. Often it's around land and land acquisition, which really changes the revenues they can extract. So I think there are a series of those pieces that play out. But I definitely would agree that that issue of the state control and the linkage is going to be critical. Yeah, so they will probably put the economic growth at their core of their, yeah. their performance. But they're changing. Yeah. Look at the most recent five-year plan, and there's now a much greater emphasis on some of these other related questions. It's not it's the emphasis anymore. Of course, the economic is at the front. But there's been a tapering down of growth at the insistence of the central, of the central government and an increase in the relevance of things like clean air and increasingly clean water. And these things connect back to some of these kinds of policies. And we have extended government-to-government -government conversations around those technology solutions. So I think it's changing. Please. Uh, back when Stephen Chu was um, uh, the head of the Department of Energy, I think it was him that made a really strong argument that technology was going to really save us. And you didn't say anything about that. So. What happened to that? Did, do you no longer believe that in DOE? <laughs> Let's see. If I can get to this slide. Uh, where is it? Ding! This one certainly makes a pretty strong case for the value of technology. And the one below it on solar makes an equivalently strong case for the value of technology. And the ones on efficiency around new standards for new appliances, almost all the stuff we're seeing in buildings. Uh, Dennis Hayes, I was at, you guys may know Dennis. He um, currently runs an organization called the Bullet Foundation. Uh, the reason he's probably best known is he was one of the founders of Earth Day. Um, he now runs this institution in Seattle. It's a foundation that provides resources for a lot of different things. He's looking at urban development and his focus on this. And I was at a talk that he gave because I was on the panel with him uh, just two days ago at the State Department for the greening of the embassies day, right? So as an exercise the United States has got to do greening of our embassies around the world. And Dennis put up a picture of his building, which he's built and finished about a year and a half ago in Seattle. And it produces the entirety of the energy it needs from its roof. And it, it has no air conditioning and it's fully temperature controlled by managing through a heat pump and a series of uh, controls of light how much heat comes into the building, and it has entirely recycled rainwater. So here's a model in which technology mixed with someone who's got a deep investment on the policy side is playing in this domain. So I think the case that I would make is by no means to dismiss the technology approach. I think it's central. But to make the case that if you do it in isolation, it won't work. Our system is not designed where perfect new technologies emerge full-blown into the market without some kind of a willingness on the part of the market to accept them. And that's often set up and rigged in favor of the status quo. So you start thinking a little bit about how do you adjust your system as a policy matter to enable things like this to move. I think it's a marriage. I didn't at all mean to dismiss it. I would put it in the context of a larger vision. <coughs> yeah, over here, and we'll go over there. Yeah, over here. Oh, so you mentioned technology. And you, uh, well, in your talk, you mentioned uh, mitigation and adaptation. Uh, I'm curious to know about uh, your opinion on uh, the new geoengineering approaches that are being talked about? Do you have an official policy? This, the U.S. government has not taken an official policy on this particular issue. There have been a series of meetings about it, a lot of discussions about it. Uh, at some levels, we subscribe to certain kinds of things which people call geoengineering, but frankly, I think fall short of the understanding that most people have. So, for example, one of the things that Secretary Chu was very interested in was this notion of white roofs. And he had done some calculations that if the world painted its roofs white, you could end up reflecting some portion of the solar radiation that came in, and it would be enough area to make an appreciable difference in the total warming. I think that's a form of geoengineering, but that's not what mostly people think about when they think about it. We think about things like iron filings, and we think about things like seeding the atmosphere, and we think about various large-scale experiments. On that front, the United States has taken the position that we think that the research should not be stopped. One of the things that's been done is in the Convention on Biodiversity, which is the only place that's actually taken this issue up there was a proposition that was put forward that all research on geoengineering should be banned because it was an unknown outcome and the consequences to biodiversity could be severe and detrimental. And the United States is not a party to that convention, but worked fairly actively with partners who are parties to try not to have it say quite so explicitly, you can't even do research on this agenda. 
It is not an easy question. It's not as if there's an answer that says you shouldn't do it or you should do it and it's cut and dried. It's much more complicated. At what point does the devastation from climate change become something that you want to do something about and that becomes a solution you want to employ? I don't think we're there yet. I don't think anybody thinks we're there yet. I think the research on it and the ancillary consequences are real. You've got to worry. I would note that almost all the forms of geoengineering only deal with temperature. They don't deal with things like ocean acidification. They don't deal with other consequences of increased carbon levels in the atmosphere. All of those are worries that we have to pay attention to. And in my mind, that's where a research agenda would have to be considered. Yes, please, behind the trays. Um, so in your talk, you mentioned um, the importance of uh, technology development and also the financial challenges in this space. Can you talk a little bit about um, the effects of Solyndra has on these two particular factors? Solyndra, I think, um, uh, I look at it from two dimensions. The first one is when, when Congress passed the, uh, the, the funding which they gave to DOE to distribute uh, for a variety of new technologies, they gave us a window and said, you can't have any more than 10% of all of your projects not succeeding. That's the metric we want you to set. So we went in and said, okay, that's a risk level. That means you can have a certain number that don't work, which means you can be slightly more receptive to risk. You're not going to be so conservative that if everything succeeds, you're most going to do things that would have happened anyway. If you have a little bit more risk, you might be at the edge and really drive some technology forward. Even if you add Solyndra and you add Fisker and you add 123, you had a series of these that did not work, we're in there at about 3%. Congress went ballistic over those items. And I understand it, right? It's taxpayer dollars being used for things that didn't work and choices that were made about failures. But at the end of the day, those things moved in some measure because there was a U.S. investment made for them. And in, in the absence of that investment, it's not that they would have moved, or if they did, perhaps nowhere near as expeditiously. So there is a question about what point in our society's decisions do we take risks? If I take a look at the Apollo series, when they went up in smoke, we didn't stop doing them because we had the outcome in mind that the government was, at that point, the only institution that could manage. And today, decades later, we're now seeing SpaceX go up there and you can buy a ticket. So here's a model in which you look at failure as part of a long-term strategy, and if you avoid any form of failure, it's damaging. So that's the first part. The second part, it's been devastating for the program. Because at the end of the day, it's essentially meant that we couldn't do anything anymore. Because any time you look at something risky, people come back and say, you can't invest in that because it might fail. Well, if you're not doing something that might fail, what's the point? You're not developing something new. So it's been very, very difficult to manage that. So a new head of the loan program office, a guy named Peter Davidson, comes out of the risk uh, and venture capital community and is much interested now in reinvigorating that. It was a couple of years ago. We can get through that period. We'd like to reopen those funds. We think there's more to be done in those areas, but it's been a hiatus in no small measure from that. Please, Patrick. What's your personal outlook, um, given your expectations So I'm, I'm skeptical, actually, that we will manage to do as much as we need to do. I'm optimistic that things will happen that we weren't thinking about that will make it better. Uh, I'll give you a case in point for each one. On the expectation of what we can deliver, if I go back to Kyoto and think about what we tried to do uh, and what we can actually get in the way of commitments, we're not making much progress. Very, very slow. On the other hand, when we did the announcement in Copenhagen, a bunch of Joe was there, a bunch of people here were there. If we did the announcement in Copenhagen, 17% was what Waxman was going to do, and then we lost Waxman. And Waxman did it in no small measure through a series of overseas purchases. Right? We did it through offsets. We did it through a tradable permit system, which was subsequently not approved, and we stuck with that number. And we'll end up being close in no small measure because of gas, which wasn't really on the horizon at that scale in the policy context at that time. So I think part of it is setting goals. I think part of it is creating expectations. I think part of it is driving a research agenda so serendipity happens and things emerge in the system. I think part of it is hard work, and it's a slog, and you keep pushing, and you keep it on the radar. And part of that is very political, and you get as senior a figure as you can get in every country to do something. I think part of the reason that Copenhagen was successful, even though the meeting itself ended in a bit of a shambles, where people went home and were incredibly frustrated, 
is that 40 heads of state sat in a room only about half as big as this and yelled at each other about what they wanted to do. It was an amazing meeting. It was extraordinary. There is no other meeting that I'm aware of in the history of our modern society in which that number of political leaders have sat together on anything. Right? They come to the UN on an annual basis and they do their parade of speeches across the platform and they'll have bilateral meetings and they never talk in a group. They have one-on-ones. And they go to meetings like Yalta, which is at the end of the war, and they have a meeting with 15 people. And they go to meetings like Versailles where they have eight people. We had 43 heads of state in that room. Every major player was there. It was extraordinary. That's driven this. They all feel a personal commitment to doing something. So you elevate it, you can make amazing things happen. And it's gotten to that point. When I began working on these negotiations, we had the first meeting just outside of Washington in a little hotel in Chantilly, not far from Dulles Airport, in 1990. And we began doing a meeting, and President Bush, the first, said, we're going to have a meeting. He announces it in the UN, and he gives us no time at all. He announces it in December and says, we're going to have a meeting in February. Go make it happen. We had about 400 people who came to that meeting. And we were talking about the shape of what would be the negotiating structure for the deal. And there were junior officials who came to that meeting. I was a negotiator at that point, you know, at 35. So fundamentally a new structure. The most recent big meeting that we had had 20,000 people who came. What the world? I think that's a great way to end. Before we wrap up today, I'd like to uh, note that in two weeks, we'll have the next seminar in the regulatory policy program. We have Paul Tucker, who's a senior fellow here at the Mosavar Rahmani Center for Business and Government. Uh, most recently, was deputy governor at the Bank of England. Uh, that's on November 14th, and I believe we're back in Bell Hall for that. Uh, and finally, I'd like you to join me in thanking uh, Dr. Jonathan Pershing for his presentation.